You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who test our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks this morning. And as we gather here, we come um, expectant. We come expectant, believing that your presence is amongst us. Uh, We come expectant, believing that your spirit is here to comfort us and to encourage us and to change us. And so, God, I pray right now that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to receive from you, and that your spirit would just be working powerfully. So, God, we, um, we commit this time to you. We're thankful and we're excited. And we're grateful for the way that you are at work here. And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask all of these things. Amen. Amen. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. And we're continuing in this letter that we've been working our way through and we'll keep working through uh, throughout the summer. And uh, the guy who wrote this, a guy named Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, uh, he was once a persecutor of the church and he met the risen Lord Jesus and he, beca- he was converted and he became a church planter um, and he planted this church that he's uh, writing to and was removed from. And one of the things I love about Paul that I think differentiates him from other first century writers and in a lot of ways, a lot of modern day writers is that Paul as a leader gave not just his head and his hands, but he gave his heart. Uh, Paul was somebody who led with heart. And really what you see in this particular passage uh, uh, in particular is Paul giving us his heart, really the heart behind his leadership, the the heart behind his leadership. Now, I think the reason this this matters and intersects with what all of us are going through is, I I don't have to tell you this, but we're going through a cultural moment where people are uniquely... Uh, skeptical and cynical towards people in leadership. Did you know that? Um, yeah, th- yeah, thanks. Uh, unless you're booing me, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to interpret the boo, but I'm going to take it as a favorable one and not a negative one. Okay, we we are, and and I think uh, I think there's there's a lot of uh, 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 legitimate reasons. You're not, you know, a lot of people with influence have made a, made a lot of mistakes, but I think one of the concerns of the trend that, that I'm feeling is that everybody is talking about what not to do, and very few people are talking about well, what should we do? Okay, I, I think people are building entire platforms, launching entire podcasts base around critiquing, criticizing, tearing down, here's what not to do. Um, but I don't know if you're anything like me. I want to know what to do. I, I, I don't want to just be a critiquer. 
I don't want to just be a criticizer. I don't want to just be a tear downer. I want to be a builder. I can't imagine existence sadder than sitting on the sidelines critiquing everything and creating nothing. I, I want to I learn from the mistakes of others while at the same time, I want to be part of the solution. I want to lead. I want to create. I want to build. I want to try. I want to fail. I want to try again. And I think we want to be those kinds of people as well. And, and so consequently, if we're going to be those kinds of people, we can't be the kind of people who just cynically sit on the sidelines and talk about what not to do. We have to learn from the wisdom of God of what to do and how to lead. I think, I think this, this, this rising trend of cynicism and skepticism towards leadership, there, there's, there's, kind of, there's two particular concerns that I have with it on top of what I've, what I've already said. I think, I think what it can lead us to is a place of negating the reality of the inevitability of leadership. Negating the inevitability of the reality of leadership. And I think there's inevitable leadership at two levels in all of our lives. First is that like, we're going to be led by somebody. Leadership is inevitable in our own lives. I've shared this quote with you before, uh, but I really like it. It comes from a pastor in New York City, John Tyson. He says, in a culture of suspicion towards leadership, we often think, I'll just not be led by anybody. I'll just lead myself. But if you don't consciously choose a leader, you will subconsciously be influenced by somebody else. You will be led. So first, we just have to understand that inevitable reality in our lives. Second is you will lead somebody else also. All of you, I really do believe this. I'm not just trying to say something nice at the beginning of a talk. Okay, I really do. I, I think every single person in this room, by the very nature of you being here, is a leader in some way. And it might be obvious. Maybe you're a business owner. Maybe you, uh, you know, the, the, the place you're employed, you have a team under you. Um, maybe you lead a city group. Maybe you lead something in the city. Um, but, but I just, I, I really do believe, like, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a leader in some way. And so maybe it's something as simple as your friend group is marked by nothing more than just getting together and drinking too much, and you're burdened by that reality and you want it to be different. That's leadership. And you can't just build your leadership upon what not to do. You have to have a vision of what to do. We don't want to just sit on the sidelines, creating nothing, criticizing everything, because there's not an existence sadder than that one. We want to be leaders. We want to be builders. We want to be triers. We want to be failures. We want to be trier beginners. Okay? Because that's what people who do stuff and don't just talk about how people are doing stuff in the wrong way actually make a difference. And we want to be difference makers for the glory of God. And so in a culture where everybody is critiquing everything and creating nothing and talking about what are all the wrong ways to do things, we want to look to the wisdom of God in a guy like Paul here, who's actually going to put on display his heart behind his leadership, where he tells us actually what he did as a leader and what he's really proud of. And we can learn from that and we can manifest that leadership in our own lives, as well as think about the type of people that we want to consciously choose to lead us. So as Paul puts the heart of his leadership on display, what he's going to put are three particular qualities of leadership. Um, he's going to speak about three particular qualities of leadership. The first is this, is that success is faithfulness. For Paul, he gives us the definition of his success in leadership. And for him, success was faithfulness. 
All of us, when we lead something, have a definition of success in some way. If you're a type A leader, probably your definition of success is you should have done better. That's, that's the way that most like, driven people feel. is like better, more. But for Paul, he actually had a definition of success. So the definition of success was faithfulness. Now look what he says in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, he's talking to the brothers and sisters at the church at Thessalonica, that our coming to you was not in vain. Sometimes this is translated that our coming to you was not a failure, was not a failure. Now, what Paul is making reference to is the moment in Acts chapter 17 where he actually plants the church in Thessalonica. And he goes there, he heralds the gospel, people believe this church is formed, but immediately persecution rises up and Paul, out of concern, really not even for his own life, like life, but for the lives of the other Christians there whose lives are being threatened because of Paul's presence, Paul has to leave far quicker than he was anticipating uh, having to leave. And things don't go the way that Paul as a leader thought they were going to go. Like, sure, like a church gets started and that's great, but there's so much more he wanted to do. There was so much more training that he wanted to accomplish. There was so much more development. There was so much more that he wanted to experience as a leader. As a leader, there's always like so much more you wanted to do. And and Paul here is saying, even though I had that experience, I want you to know that what we experienced together was not in vain. It was not a failure. All right, why wasn't it a failure, Paul? Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, here it is, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It wasn't a failure because even though circumstantially everything went awful and totally other than what was according to plan, he was faithful, let's say faithful together, he was faithful to remain bold to declare the gospel of God. Paul was faithful in the midst of persecution. So again, what emerges here is Paul's definition of success. His definition of success was faithfulness to what he was responsible and called by God to do. He was faithful to do what he was responsible and able to do. In our own culture, again, a lot of times the definition of success in leadership is I should have done better. I should have done more. I should have become a millionaire. I should have changed the world, whatever that means. I should have become a Fortune 500 company. I, I don't know what, like a lot of times we just don't have these definitions of success. And for Paul, for Paul, the definition of success was faithfulness. Now, I, I want to. I feel like I, I, I really enjoy this. I meet with a lot of leaders. I try to be helpful to a lot of leaders. Um, I've experienced a lot of the pains of leadership, and so one of the things I do, um, and I've done this for probably a number of you, is I have this thing that I draw, and I'm going to draw it here. Um, that, let me see if I can. It's y'all need to. If, if you don't know who Brian Enderweiss is, he's running slides right now. And you need to give him a hug afterwards for hopefully helping. Here we go. Okay. This was like, Brian, thank you for figuring this out. Um, okay. So I think, is this working? Oh, let me make sure this is working before I just start talking. And if this stops working, yell at me, okay? Because I'm going to have my back to this. Um, okay. So, so I think in the life of any leader, there's this, this, 
and, and Paul is, is putting this on display. He's practicing what I'm about to talk to you about here. But to make this very practical, to intersect with kind of wherever it is you're leading in your life, there's this dynamic at play for any leader, and it's the tricky relationship between what you're concerned about and what you're responsible for. What you're concerned about and what you're responsible for. Now, let me tell you about how any kind of like uh, uh, leader operates without a lot of intentionality is if this is what you're concerned about, this is what you feel responsible for. In that, like, everything you care about, you are responsible to fix. I care about homelessness, I am responsible to fix homelessness. I care about your addiction, I am responsible to fix your addiction. I care about whatever it is, a lot of us live lives where the circle of concern and the circle of responsibility are one and the same, and that is the perfect recipe for anxiety, eventually depression, eventually burnout. Okay? What a healthy leader does, Paul is putting this on display. By the way, all he's doing is reflecting the leadership of Jesus. There's a lot of things when you study the life of Jesus. Him, the Messiah, it's amazing. Jesus, the Messiah of the world, has the least Messiah complex of any leader you've ever met. It's like amazing. And even Jesus had this ability to differentiate between what he was concerned about and what he was responsible for. There's a lot of times where Jesus in his life says no to really good opportunities. Isn't that crazy? Paul is doing the exact same thing here where he's talking about what I care about and what I'm responsible for. Now, this is what healthy leaders do, is rather than saying that concern and responsibility are one in the same, is that they have a big circle of concern. So look, leaders care about what's wrong in the world. Okay, it's a good thing that you care It's a good thing that you're burdened. It's a good thing that you want to get involved. It's a good thing you want to make a difference. But if your concern circle and your responsibility circle are one and the same, you are not going to be okay. Not even Jesus did that. Okay? So it's not going to work for you. I know you're super driven. Okay? I know you're okay on three hours sleep. It still isn't going to work. It still isn't going to work. See, what a healthy leader does is they realize that it's silly just to believe that they can take care of everything they're concerned about in the world, but instead they realize that there are three circles that actually fill this circle. There is me, what am I responsible for? There is you, what are you responsible for? And there is, this is the big one, there is God. What is, what is only God able to do that I can't do? Paul looks at this particular situation in Thessalonica and says, there's so much I wanted to do. There was so much I'm concerned about. There's so much that keeps me up at night. There's so much I care about. Yet, it's not a failure because I did what I was called to do. I did what I was responsible to do. I've heard somebody say that responsible has to be synonymous with responsible. What are you actually able to do? But a lot of times what happens in these moments of leadership as an overflow of our delusions of grandeur and caring in inappropriate ways is we erase God and we erase the other person out of the equation and we feel like we're the savior of the situation. Right? So let's be like, let's just, let me just be like as practical as possible with this. Let's, let's say, for example, you have a friend who is demonstrating a concerning behavior and it burdens you. See, what happens, is this still working? Okay. So what happens 
Okay, there's your concern. I don't want my friend to keep drinking so much, whatever it is, okay? What a lot of times you do, that's that you care. You want to be a leader in that situation. We're talking about something that any of us have felt, okay? You don't have to be a CEO to experience this. Is that a lot of times what happens in our overcaring and not differentiating our realms of responsibility is we feel like success is I've got this and I'm going to fix this, right? I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to give a book. I'm going to have a podcast. I'm going to be present. I am going to make sure you are fixed. Does that ever work for any of us? Because here's what happens is you don't just do it, but then that person gets drunk and you're like, it's all my fault. And then you go back and you're playing through conversations where you're like, if I just said this, okay, next time I'm going to say this instead of this. If I'd just been a little firmer, if I'd just been a little gentler, if I just delved into their family of origin and talked about their mom instead of their dad, you know, then, then they wouldn't have drank that Michelob Ultra, right? That, that would have like fixed, I don't know what I thought of, but that's like, that would have, <laughs> does it even have alcohol in it? I don't know. But, 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 but you know what I'm saying? Like, like, but and that puts on yourself an impossible burden of leadership where success is basically playing God of the situation. And anytime we play God, you know, we make terrible gods. So what we do then in these situations, all right, I don't want my friend to keep drinking so much. All right, what am I responsible to do what are they responsible to do? Which, hey, by the, time, by the way, since we're just talking about this, this is not trying to be a whole thing about addiction and all that, but people are way more capable than you give them credit for, okay? Unless they are a child or mentally handicapped, they have the capacity to do what is right, and you don't need to rob them of their responsibility. And actually, a lot of times, you robbing them of responsibility only makes them sicker. And then... What is God only able to do? Living a life of this sort of tension is the only way you're going to make it as a leader. Because leadership is disappointing and it's hurtful and it's painful and you do the best you can and it doesn't work a lot of times. That's what Paul's saying. Like, I did the best I could. And I want you to know, I was faithful to, to like what God called me to do. I was faithful to preach the gospel. I was faithful to you guys. And uh, even though it looks like an absolute mess, I can sleep well at night. Okay, so that's what I'm responsible to do. I trust God for what he's responsible to do, and I'm writing to you to tell you what you're responsible to do. Now go and do it. Okay? For him, success was faithfulness. All right, two. Um, Paul worked for the approval of one. Every leader performs for somebody. All right? Every leader performs for somebody. We are all still that kid driving home from the baseball game, hoping that because we got two hits, dad's going to say he's proud of us and stop for ice cream, okay? We never grow out of that. We all perform for somebody. And what Paul is saying here is that the heart of his leadership was striving to earn the approval of God alone the approval of God alone. Look at what he says in verse three. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted 
with the gospel. Now, what's going on in verses three and four, and a lot of Paul's letters are like this, where Paul had his haters, okay? Paul had people all the time who was tearing him down, critiquing him, saying he's not legit. And so what he's probably doing here is refuting particular critiques of him. Um, but look at this. So he's kind of saying, like, I wasn't like this, I wasn't like this, I wasn't like this. So why, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you after? Okay. So we speak, here it is, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So I'm leading and I'm speaking not out of some sort of like dysfunctional relationship with those I'm leading where I'm trying to get something from you through my leadership of you. Hey, let me, let me just say this. The leadership of other people is a terrible place to heal from your insecurities and wounds. The leadership of others is a terrible place to try to heal of your insecurities and wounds. So he's like, we don't have this dysfunctional codependent relationship where I'm leading you to try to get something from you. I'm leading you to get from God what only God can give me. He, he elaborates on this. That's why he says, we didn't come with words of flattery. What's flattery? Flattery is saying to somebody's face what you would never say behind their back. Right? Saying something to somebody's face, all these nice things that you actually don't feel. We didn't come with flattery. As you know, nor pretext for greed, God is witness. So he's like, we weren't trying to manipulate you to get money. Nor did we seek glory from people. This is the heaviest piece of this. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. He's saying, what I'm not trying to do is get glory from you in my leadership of you. Glory, where does glory come from? Where's the only place you can go to to get glory? It's really, as simple. I know nobody wants to yell it out because it's like the environment is not conducive, but like it is the Sunday school answer, like Jesus, God, however you want to answer, right? Like glory belongs to God alone. And what Paul is saying is, I'm not, I'm not going to people. I'm not going to the leadership of people to get from them what I'm only meant to get from God. Let me, let me flesh this out for a second. All right. Um, I have a wide range of hobbies. I'm an easily bored person who gets into lots of different things, okay? And one of my hobbies is I really like sneakers, okay? I really like sneakers. And I think we have a, a, a sneaker up here. Do we have this picture? Okay. Oh, man, the image quality, that's on me. Okay. Um, all right. The shoe is, the shoe is, it looks great on that screen right there. Um, okay. Now, now you're thinking to yourself, do I have this sneaker? This sneaker, uh, if you got it off StockX, it would be like somewhere, if you got it new, uh, legit, it'd be like $1,100, $1,200, something like that. So I don't have this shoe. You don't have to call preachers and sneakers or whoever it is, you know? Like, look, <laughs> I'm a great New Balance guy, okay? That's what a data for. I have to wear this. I try to buy shoes like this, and the internet redirects me to New Balance because, like, that's, that's, all, that's all that somebody in my stage of life is allowed to wear, Okay. But I love this shoe. I love this shoe. I think this is the, the, the I think this is like my favorite uh, Jordan One, and I think it's I think it's just a, a beautiful shoe, and it's summit orange. So if you you know you're feeling generous at Christmas, just <laughs> file this away, okay? Uh, don't do that. But uh, but okay. Now 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 here's here's what, because because I'm uh, into sneakers and like, I think it, I think they're cool. I think they're wearable art. Um, as as I've learned about this. What you learn is like where to get shoes like this from and where not to get shoes like this from. All right, and so I'm on sneaker message boards and I'm on sneaker, sneaker subreddits 
And inevitably, what will happen every Christmas or so is somebody will post a higher quality image of this shoe, and, and, and it'll be somebody whose account is like two days old, and they will say, uh, so excited, just usually they'll say copped, because that's what they say in the sneaker community, just copped the uh, reverse shattered backboard 1.0 for my boyfriend. He's been talking about it forever. We thought it was too expensive. We found it for $125 on Facebook Marketplace. So excited to give them to him tomorrow. And then, no, don't woo. Um, <laughs> because anybody in the sneaker community knows you never buy anything off of Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> buy a lamp off, off Facebook Marketplace. Do not buy sneakers. If you take anything away from today's sermon, <laughs> never buy nice sneakers off Facebook Marketplace. But, you know, it's somebody's well-intentioned girlfriend who doesn't know, doesn't understand the nuances. And what did she buy? What did she buy off Facebook Marketplace for $125, which costs $1,000 at a legit place? She bought fakes, right? She bought replicas. She bought counterfeits. That's what happens when you go to the wrong place in the attempt of getting the real thing. When you're in the community, what you realize is there's certain places you go. And I don't know what your thing is, but you know, like, when you're going to buy something of value, there's a place you go to get the real thing, to make sure you get what is legit, don't you? That's what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is, I'm not going to the wrong place to get the real thing. I'm not going to people to get glory. I go to God to get glory. But for too many of us, our leadership of other people is this weird, our hearts are intertwined in inappropriate ways in which the reason we lead is to get something we've never had. The reason we lead is to get something from people so we don't have to go to God to get it. Have you ever thought about how often we might lead people in the attempt to be able to avoid God altogether? And everybody suffers as a consequence. Nobody does well when you buy counterfeits. Nobody wants to see you in those shoes, right? <laughs> nobody wants to break it to you that those are fake, you know? Nobody, nobody wants to show you that the swoosh is off. Nobody, but, like, like again, let, let me give you an example, especially for you guys at the nine where there's a lot of parents here, is, like, you can't parent your kids if what you're trying to get from your kids is like something you never got from your parents, for example. But do you know how easy that is? And all of a sudden with our kids, we don't parent them, but we try to be like buddies with them. Like, I think it's going to be friends with your kids, but not like peers with your kids. Like your kid has peers, it's other four-year-olds, right? <laughs> like if you're an adult who's a peer with your four-year-old, something is wrong. But what happens a lot of times is out of our codependency and our insecurity and, oh my gosh, like, I mean, it sounds silly to say out loud, but we feel it all the times, like, I want my kid to like me, I want my kid to like me, I want my kid to like me. Like, if you have that sort of insecurity in the leadership of your children, it'll be impossible to biblically parent your child. I'm not talking about a firmness, I'm not talking about a severity, I'm just, I'm just talking about there has to be a healthy differentiation where I am leading you because I'm seeking not your approval, I'm seeking the approval of God. 
And actually what I believe is, is my leadership as an overflow of seeking his approval as opposed to your approval will lead to me leading and loving you better than the alternative. And I think it applies to when we lead our city group. I think it applies when we lead our friend group. I think it applies when we lead at work or whatever it is. You can't lead people you're that insecure around and scared of and needing to affirm you to satisfy something within you that only God is meant to satisfy. He's saying, I'm not seeking your approval. I'm not seeking your glory. I'm seeking the glory of God. Glory comes from God alone. And so that's why, that's why I'm leading for him. Third, gentleness is always possible. The possibility of gentleness in leadership. Isn't this a surprising third one? He says this in verse 7. I'm not, I'm not going to teach through this because Tony uh, did a great job already teaching through this at, at, at Mother's Day a few weeks ago. But I, I want to I make this observation about this in light of everything we've said up to this point. He says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our very lives, because you would become very dear to us. I think this is astounding because I think a lot of times uh, leadership can attract a certain personality type uh, of um, maybe not just intensity, but also severity. And it's deeply moving when you look at these verses of what Paul writes here of um, the way that Paul led because he was such an intense guy. Like sometimes I'm I'm speaking to somebody who is just like, I carry an intensity with me in every situation as much as I want to turn it off all the time. Um. And I think sometimes it's easy to believe, some of you are like that, you know, here's my Enneagram joke, shout out to like the Enneagram 8s in the room, but it's like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think it's easy sometimes to believe that uh, intensity and severity have to be one and the same. Uh, but, but Paul was an intense guy, but, but I wanted to, to awaken us to the possibility of gentleness regardless of the difficulty of the circumstances in which you're leading. Because I think what's easy to believe, and this is, this is at a, a personal level and it's at a cultural level in particular right now, what's easy to believe is that kindness and gentleness is preferable, but it's not just going to work when the circumstances don't allow it. Right? It's like, I would love to be kind. I would love to be gentle. I would love to, you know, kind of manifest this fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about elsewhere in Galatians of a kindness that reflects the kindness of God that Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans actually changes us and leads us to repentance. But you don't understand um, things are really bad right now. Things are really hard right now. People aren't reasonable right now. I've actually, I've seen this, um, I've seen this frequently uh, over the last couple of months uh, and I see it on both sides of kind of like the political spectrum. I see it on the right and I see it on the left of people who sort of say like, in theory, gentleness would be great, but you don't understand. And, and even, you know what they'll say? I feel like this is so clever. Gentleness used to work. That's what they'll say. 
They'll say gentleness is ideal and it used to work. 10 years ago when people were reasonable, hey, I was leading 10 years ago. People were not reasonable 10 years ago, okay? I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, talk about chronological snobbery as if like, man, 10, 10. Okay, so what they'll say is gentleness is uh, uh, ideal. And yeah, 10 years ago, oh, back in the good old days. Back in the 2010s. Oh, back in the 2010s. People were reasonable and we had uh, rational decorum and, and consequently, but, but like, hey, things are bad now and they're only getting worse. And so the, the, the tools of the tool belt that work are not gentleness and kindness anymore. Pull out the hammer, pull out the gun. That's all you need. Get to war. Both sides say that. Which, can I give you a little kind of comment, cultural commentary aside? Here's what's really interesting. I don't know if anybody read this, but Jonathan Haidt wrote an article in The Atlantic that came out like a month ago that I thought was really interesting. He was talking about the social dynamics of why we feel this way. And one of the things he talks about, it's called like, it's like why social media is making us stupider. One of, the, you know, one of those articles, something like that. And he talks about how social media, which is the vehicle through which a lot of us, even we're like, I hate social media, I hate social media, but like, it's what you spend 45 minutes doing before you start your day, okay? And so what, what he was talking about is the very like mechanic of what makes something successful on social media is outrage. And so what's differentiated, this is where things are a little bit different, what's differentiated the cultural moment from the way we consumed media prior is that we have this engine of information which platforms the angry fringe on both sides. Which platform, the way to be successful is to be an angry fringe kind of outsider. What happens is because that fringe is then brought into the mainstream is it normalizes the fringe and the angry. What happens then, as a consequence, is the reasonable middle 90% or so are constantly bombarded by the fringe angry 5% on either side, and then you feel like you have to make a choice. And here's the choice, and both of them are crap. The first choice is you just opt out altogether because you say, hey, people are crazy and I can't do this anymore. Or the second is you feel like you have to pick a side and get angry also. And that's what a lot of people have done. Like, I cannot tell you the number of people who have gotten angry, rageful, in inappropriate ways, and taken aside because they feel like, I, I, just, I really like that article, so I was like, oh, okay, that's what's happening. It, helped me, it just kind of helped me make sense and not be like so discouraged. It's like, okay, this is, this is what's going on. Okay, so, so I think what's, what's this narrative of gentleness, kindness, is ideal, almost like the cultural circumstances don't allow for it. That's all I'm talking about here. I would love to be gentle, I just can't be. I would love to be kind, it just won't work. And then I look at Paul in the midst of circumstances that are harder than I would assume almost anybody in this room has ever experienced and said, you wanna know what marked my leadership? Was kindness that is reflected in the way that a mom nurses her baby. What? Like, you will never see that on a TED Talk. You will never see that, you know, go viral on YouTube. It's just like, nobody wants to hear that. And yet it's the way of Christ. And so maybe we all need to hear it. Now, it's key to define gentleness. What gentleness is not, okay, what is, 
what is, what, what is, what is not gentleness? Gentleness is not being convictionless. Gentleness is not being backboneless. Gentleness is not like you do whatever and it doesn't matterness. It's not weakness. You know, in some ways, what we have to do as the people of God is reclaim the holy tension of maintaining convictions but being kind in the midst of it, of being like the nicest people you've ever disagreed with about the stuff of life that matters the most. What gentleness is, is the tangible manifestation of God's kindness that the scripture tells us is actually the vehicle through which God changes us. As Paul again says, and I, I, th- I think it's Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How do we change? How do we change? God's kindness leads us to repentance. I, I, I was thinking about this quote this morning. We don't even have a slide for this because I was thinking about this as I was coming up. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Hold on. I'm literally looking through a text message where I sent this here a second ago. Okay. Um, Let's see if I can find that. When I thought, here it is. This is from Charles Spurgeon. We'll have this, so focus on this. He said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. If God's kindness is the vehicle through which he leads us, I'm not sure why we believe we're the exceptions who do not have to lead in the same way. Again, we're not talking about being convictionless. We're not saying anything goes. We're not saying you don't correct. What we're saying is you never grow beyond gentleness. You never grow beyond gentleness. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. I want to, uh, as we pray, uh, I want to ask God to bring kind of, kind of two things in mind. Um, one, as we're praying, I, let's ask God to bring to mind just a, an area of life where he has called you to lead. All right, an area of life where he's called you to lead. For some of you, again, it might be very obvious. It might be like what you woke up feeling anxious about and you had like stress dreams about last night. Okay, you're like, okay. It might not be as obvious. And again, it might just be something in your friend group or in your city group or whatever, whatever it might be. Ask God to bring a particular place in mind. And then in light of everything we've talked about of the leadership of Paul that points us to the leadership of Christ, ask yourself this question. What is one simple thing that God is telling me to do. Super simple. What is one thing, in light of everything we talked about, God is telling me to do? Remember, we talked about this. Jesus tells us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So what is this one simple thing? So, so maybe it's just something as simple as like, you don't have to lead through intimidation anymore. Okay, it might be. I mean, I say that's simple. That's like super hard to un, 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 walk back from. But I'm just saying like, but it might be simple in terms of what God's inviting you and calling you to do. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Um, that's why I like to create space, and I believe God speaks. And so um, let's press into that, and then, uh, Ben, whenever you all want to come up, can I'll, I'll give some space to focus on that. So, Father, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your leadership of us. 
I pray that as we respond and as we sing and as we pray, we would do so mindful of how you have led us, that you've lived for us, you've died in our place for us, you've resurrected for us, and that it's truly been your kindness that has led us to repentance. You you could have killed us, but your son died in our place, the ultimate expression of kindness. And so in light of that, Father, would you, would you bring to mind in this room full of leaders uh, an area of responsibility? Uh, and secondly, would you just bring to mind, uh, what are you telling us to do? And even, even a little bit, protect us from ourselves. Like, don't, don't push us to a place where we got to, like, be like, tomorrow I'm going to fix everything. <laughs> That's the way a lot of leaders think. Uh, you gently parent us. You lead us just one step at a time. Just one step at a time. So uh, what, what, are you, what are you telling us to do? Maybe, maybe we just need to, like, stop leading out of insecurity and hoping that, like, Somebody will affirm us in a way that will like finally make us feel validated. Um, maybe we need to lead convictionally but kindly. Maybe we need to stop overcompensating for people who are not doing what they are able to do and give them space uh, to have to do work with God. Whatever it is, Father, we want to continue to press into your heart. And we want to think about not just what we're supposed to go do, but more importantly, what you've done for us. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his kindness. We're thankful for his leadership. We're thankful for his gentle and lowly heart. Let us respond um, to him now. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.